Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome, everybody, to the Communication Practice Group of Kelly Dry, uh, our monthly discussion of items from the FCC's open meeting. Uh, we'll be discussing today uh, about four or five items from the September open meeting. Uh, but before we get there, uh, there's been a lot of discussion these days about the Democrats finally taking control of the FCC with the confirmation of Anna Gomez as FCC commissioner just a week or so ago. Uh, Democrats have been waiting for this moment for over two and a half years. It has now arrived. And as soon as it did arrive, uh, Chairwoman Rosenworcel announced uh, the initiation of the Open Internet NPRM. Uh, the draft of that NPRM came out yesterday, and it will be voted on uh, at the open meeting in October. So we will be talking about that further uh, on our next podcast. Uh, the uh, Democratic majority will make a difference in many ways. Uh, the chairwoman no longer really has to negotiate with the two Republicans, uh, and it will have an effect on a variety of items. Uh, next up probably is the digital discrimination NPRM, where the FCC needs to uh, adopt an order by November 15. Um, other potential items that will be affected include all-in pricing, uh, NPRM, uh, data caps, NOI, uh, media ownership, poll attachments. Uh, I don't think there's anything uh, major in terms of uh, exclusive license spectrum auctions. Uh, FCC is actually still looking for authority there, but there is really no sort of unallocated spectrum at the moment that they can grab, but it's gonna permeate uh, the entire discussion at the FCC. And as we go forward with our podcasts, uh, we will be discussing all of that further. So with that as an intro, uh, Chip, your guidance is gonna start off with a couple of items from the September open meeting. Chip, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, as Tom said, I'll be uh, addressing two of the items, uh, both dealing with the space economy. Uh, first, I'll talk about a report and order and further notice of proposed rulemaking uh, regarding the Commission's processing of satellite and Earth station applications. Now, procedural rules and application filing requirements are not always the sexiest stuff, but they are foundational. Uh, and they dictate whether uh, regulations uh, and licensing serve the industry sector to which they apply. Uh, and for satellite 
industry and their customers. Applications are the prelude to launching new space stations, modifying existing ones, and deploying Earth stations that communicate with or through satellites. Now, this report and order, which sought to streamline those rules and make them more uh, practical and, and, and serviceable for uh, satellite operators and uh, their customers, uh, was adopted with very strong support from all four of the commissioners. Uh, this was prior to Anna Gomez being sworn in. Um, and, you know, it, this is one of a half a dozen actions taken or rulemaking proceedings initiated by the commission since the beginning of last year uh, regarding satellite policies and regulations. Um, and again, this action is more mundane in nature than some of the others as it deals with process, uh, but not substance. Uh, but the FCC is seeing quite an increase in both the complexity and the number of applications for space services. Uh, and Chairwoman Rosenworcel stated in her uh, comments at the open meeting that the more than 56,000 Part 25 applications pending today is more than double from uh, just four years ago. Uh, and then the commission, uh, realizing the urgency of this, acted quickly to prepare and adopt the report and order. Uh, the rulemaking uh, that preceded this was only initiated in December of 2022. Uh, and the quick action was a sign of the consensus in the industry and at the agency to make the application processes more transparent, clear, and practical. Um, now, it's not my intention to review all aspects of the report and order in this podcast. There's certainly not time for that. But one of the most welcome changes is the adoption of timelines for the Space Bureau staff to make a decision whether an application for a space or earth station is acceptable for filing and then place it on public notice or within that same timeline to notify the applicant that public notice will be delayed because the staff's review identified questions, errors, or omissions that must first be satisfied. So for all Earth stations and non-geostationary orbit space station applications, uh, there will now be a 30-day timeline uh, once the rules become effective for the staff to either put that on public notice or identify what needs to be corrected before it can go on public notice. And for non-geostationary applications, uh, space station applications, a 60-day timeline will apply. Uh, also note, the commission adopted measures to reduce the number of applications that are dismissed for technical procedural reasons. Uh, of particular uh, importance, uh, the FCC's rules to uh, were changed to remove a subsection that provided that the Space Bureau would immediately dismiss applications that request authority to operate a space station in a frequency band that is not allocated internationally for such operations. Instead, going forward, when such an application is filed, uh, it must include a request for waiver of the existing allocations, um, and it will then be accepted for filing and consideration on the merits. Um, the order recognizes that there may be benefits associated with operations that are not consistent, consistent, excuse me, with the current 
international table of frequency allocations in certain circumstances. Um, so frequency allocation table waiver requests will now be put on an equal footing with other waivers of the FCC's substantive rules in part 25. The order openly, as seems appropriate, does keep some of the burden on applicants to ensure their applications are not delayed or rejected at square one. For example, the FCC reminds and encourages applicants to ensure that their applications comply with the rules and are complete. And if there is variance with the rules, uh, to include a waiver request at the time of application stating what the applicant believes is a good cause for the waiver. The rule changes to the part 25 uh, section of the FCC's regulations will become effective 30 days after publication in the federal register. Uh, per the ordering clauses in the document, no office of management and budget review will be required. This is in the case of some uh, rules that affect applications, uh, but this is mostly about the, uh, the commission's process, not the filing of applications by uh, interested parties. Um, now, I would note too that to complement these rule changes, uh, the Space Bureau will be uh, adopting and implementing a transparent transparency initiative. And this will include uh, the publication of frequently asked questions, tutorial videos, uh, and the conduct of workshops, among other things that will complement a cleaning up of the procedural rules, all to help applications move through the process more quickly. So if this is an area of interest to you, you will want to monitor the Bureau's future releases and headlines for more on the transparency initiative. The report and order is accompanied by a further notice uh, of rulemaking. Comments and reply comments will be due 30 and 60 days after publication in the Federal Register. Uh, this is part of an ongoing initiative to work with industry uh, to have the commission's rules better serve the industry. Now, this will also deal with the commission's uh, application processes. And uh, among the number of changes in the further notice that are discussed, or proposed changes, I should say, uh, the commission will consider whether to adopt timelines for acting on at least certain types of space station and earth station applications uh, under shot clocks, if you will, which would build on the decision in the report and order that I mentioned to establish timelines for applications for accepting uh, them for filing and putting them on public notice. So this would be the second half of the process once they're on public notice, a shot clock to uh, for the commission to act on that. Now I'm going to move on to a second item involving the space-based economy adopted at the September meeting. Uh, the commission added a late entry to the agenda uh, for uh, an item that had been on circulation before the commission for several months. And unlike the other items on the agenda, there was no draft for public review prior to the meeting. And this one is very substantive rather than procedural. The commission adopted a second report and order and second further notice of proposed rulemaking in docket 13115. So this one has been around uh, for a decade now. And the commission made more spectrum available in that second report and order for commercial space launches. 
And in the further notice, it solicits comment on potentially making even more spectrum available for space launch operations. So this is a welcome action for the likes of SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and, and others in the space-based economy as the number of commercial, in addition to government launches, uh, uh, are increasing. In a nutshell, the two principal actions of the commission in the second report and order are to expand access to spectrum for non-federal launch operations through secondary allocations and non-exclusive licensing in the 2025 to 2110 megahertz band and throughout the 2200 to 2290 megahertz band. These bands are both heavily used by the federal government. The commission in the second report and order used the word congested multiple times, but they have both been used to date for certain limited commercial launch activity. Um, the 2025 megahertz band has been used to send control signals to guide reusable launch uh, vehicle boosters uh, to guide them to controlled landings. And the 2200 megahertz band, uh, which is uh, mostly a federal only band, has been used on a limited basis to send diagnostic telemetry data from launch vehicles to controllers on the ground to track performance uh, during the launches. A 2021 order of the commission uh, did allow limited use to four five megahertz wide subbands on a secondary basis within the 2200 megahertz band. But now all 90 megahertz of that band will become available on a secondary basis for commercial space launch. The technical and licensing rules adopted in the report and order will be contained in a new rule part of the commission's rules, part 26, right next to uh, part 25, which is appropriate. Uh, the key threshold issue uh, resolved by the report and order is the scope of permitted services in the two bands uh, and the underlying definitions. The FCC adopted a broad definition of non-federal, quote, space launch operations, uh, end quote, as any activity that places a uh, launch vehicle, whether it's an expendable launch vehicle or a reusable one, uh, or uh, a re-entry vehicle used for launch, and any payload or human being in a suborbital trajectory uh, or in Earth orbit or otherwise into outer space. And this includes both pre-launch testing and the recovery or re-entry of the launch vehicle. Uh, the definitions were used to scope the permissible services in the two bands. So the entire 2200 to 2290 megahertz band can be used by eligible non-federal operators for all launch vehicle to ground communications associated with tracking and telemetry. And the 2025 uh, to 2110 megahertz band is available for all ground to launch vehicle telecommand uses supporting space launch operations. The FCC emphasized that the telemetry tracking and command communications in the two bands uh, for non-federal use are authorized only during space launch operations. On-orbit communications with space vehicles 
uh, and payloads after launch vehicle separates from the payload are outside the scope of the services authorized by the commission. However, uh, weather spectrum should be made available for such payload or in orbit communications in these two bands uh, or other spectrum bands is a key issue that will be addressed through the second further notice. Licensing in these two bands will be non-exclusive for 10 years. Uh, it will require pre-launch coordination with the federal government through NTIA. And in the case of the 2025 to 2110 megahertz band, which is a shared federal non-federal band, coordination will also be required with the Society of Broadcast Engineers, uh, which acts as a coordinator for the broadcast auxiliary service uh, and a couple of other non-federal video related services that are permitted in that band. However, the order uh, concluded that a non-federal third-party coordinator for space launch operations will be involved going forward along with NTIA and the Society of Broadcast Engineers. And the Weilers Bureau uh, under delegated authority uh, will be issuing public notices related uh, for, uh, to the coordination matters, including the uh, coordinator selection process, as well as the procedures uh, that that coordinator will use to ensure compliance by space launch licensees with the coordination requirements. The um, Bureau will also be issuing a further public uh, or a future public notice uh, related to the application filing procedures uh, under these new allocations for initial uh, authorizations, which again will be non-exclusive. Uh, so there won't be auctions related to this. And they will also um, provide directions on how to use uh, the ULS on the FCC's website to make those applications. The Commission adopted a second further notice, as I mentioned, and this will address several issues. I noted earlier the issue of spectrum to support payload and in-orbit space vehicle communications. But in addition, the Commission recognizes that the 2025 and the 2200 megahertz bands are, are both congested. And they have a concern that despite their actions, uh, the availability of spectrum in those two bands uh, will not be sufficient to support space launch operations, uh, especially as the commercial space economy grows. So the commission in that second further notice uh, raises the issue of whether to allow expanded use of the 2360 to 2395 megahertz band for space launch operations on a secondary basis. Now this band is a shared federal non-federal band primarily allocated for aeronautical mobile telemetry and used heavily as the further notice recognizes for flight testing operations today. There are three bands uh, available on a coordinated basis for space launch operations um, and the commission had concluded in the second report in order that use of that band for space launch operations uh, was limited and the commission was unconvinced that there was a need for a new allocation in the band. However, the further notice takes this up again and seeks comment on the question whether to expand its use for space launch operations. 
Commission also asked whether space launch operations should be permitted in the other critical non-federal federal shared flight test ban at 1435 to 1525 megahertz. Now the new rules regarding commercial space launch will be effective 30 days after publication in the federal register. Although there are sections of the new rules, uh, given that we're talking about uh, licensing rules and applications that must first undergo a review by the Office of Management and Budget. So there will be a further notice when those rules come into effect. And the second further notice of proposed rulemaking will have comments due 30 and 60 days after federal register publication, which will be uh, uh, sometime uh, in the coming weeks or months. Now I'm gonna turn it over to my partner, Hank Kelly, and he's going to talk about rule changes the commission adopted at the open meeting to address direct access to numbers by interconnected VoIP providers. Thanks very much, Chip. I appreciate that. Um, good presentation on your part. Um, so at the commission's September 21st uh, meeting, the commission adopted its second report in order to establish new rules that impose obligations on interconnected VoIP providers that are applying to the commission to have direct access to telephone numbers. I'll explain the obligations that these new roles impose on the new applicants, but I'll note first that they really have a clear effect to number one, provide the commission with greater enforcement mechanisms to go after bad actors that ultimately misuse the numbering resources. And then two, to incent interconnected VoIP providers applying for new numbers to do so only for those numbers and in those states where they can actually use those resources. So in addition to adopting the rules, the commission also issued its second further notice of proposed rulemaking to start to the process of having these new rules that they adopted apply to interconnected VoIP providers that have already received direct access authorization. Now these, as I mentioned, these rules apply to the new, new applicants um, and the commission is now starting the process to have uh, uh, them apply to those companies that have already res received those resources. Um, and for that proposal, the commission ceased comments to be filed 30 days after this further, further notice of proposed rulemaking is published in the Federal Register. So for context of, of this, this order, let me note that in uh, 2015, the commission established a process to allow interconnected VoIP pro providers to apply to the commission for authority to obtain telephone numbers that could then be issued to their customers, just like a local exchange carrier. Uh, the process has been relatively easy over the years. A VoIP provider would file an application with the commission, identifying the company, provide contact in information uh, for compliance issues at the state and federal level, uh, and then follow existing number resource, util uh, require that the company uh, follow existing number resource utilization and forecast reporting obligations. And then once that's, uh, that's done, the, the applicant would then self-certify that the company has sufficient managerial, technical, and financial capacity to provide service and is otherwise in compliance with USF and other regulatory payment obligations. Now, after that application uh, gets filed, there's a publication. And after about 45 to 60 days, unless a party raises a public interest concern, these applications have generally been granted. Now, this order imposes new obligations 
uh, that target the interconnected VoIP providers that will be prospectively applying for direct access. So let me describe what the new obligations are. So first, all direct access VoIP applicants must certify under oath by an officer that it will use numbering resources lawfully and will not knowingly facilitate robocalls, spoofing, or fraud. Uh, surprisingly, that, that particular language was not actually included in the prior obligations, although it was assumed that that, that would be the case. In addition, the applicants must certify that they, it has complied with all stir-shaken caller ID authentication and robocall mitigation requirements. Notably, the Commission's rules already require VoIP providers with direct access to keep their information and their certifications updated. So a company is currently required uh, to proactively report to the Commission any changes to the facts that have been certified. So for example, if an applicant certifies that it has not been subject to, to an investigation in its application and the application is approved, uh, the provider must update its certification on file with the Commission and pro proactively amend that certification if those circumstances change. So this is an example of a requirement that the commission's adopted to be able to more quickly and with more sound regulatory authority, take enforcement action against a company that has misused numbering resources when it needs to. Um, I, I think the, the commission uh, wants to be able to, to require companies to proactively modify any certifications that they've had um, so that when they fail to do so and an issue arises, um, it's just another arrow in their quiver that they can use to, uh, to, to uh, take action, enforcement action. So the next change is the FCC now requires enhanced disclosure and review of VoIP provider applicants with which have, or who have, or which have foreign ownership of 10% or more. So like an application for transfer of control with section 214 authority, applicants with 10% or more foreign ownership applicants for direct access to phone numbers uh, must also disclose this on their application. This wasn't a previous requirement. Uh, further, companies with this foreign ownership will not be will now be put on. Uh, I'm sorry, will not be put on a streamlined process for approval. Uh, this will give the bureau sufficient time to assess any potential national security issues raised uh, by the applications. Now, the Commission's order uh, also notes that it will consider changing the applicable percentage of foreign ownership in its pending 214 authority proceeding. And if that percentage does change, the cha that change, they're thinking about reducing it from 10% to 5% for, for notice, um, that change will also apply to the direct access to telephone number applications. Now, notably, the Commission did not adopt a rule that would require applicants uh, from VoIP providers with phone ownership, that those applications be referred to the executive branch and, and the Department of Justice, so namely Team Telecom. So decisions on numbering authority will remain with the Bureau and not be allocated over to uh, uh, Team Telecom. And like other certifications, the FCC notes that any VoIP provider with direct access to phone numbers has an obligation to update any changes to its phone ownership. Third, the new rules apply will, re, uh, will require uh, that applicants certify that they will comply with a series of other commission rules, such as CALEA, the Communications Assistance with Law Enforcement Act, the commission's access stimulation rules, and compliance with all FCC Form 477 and Form 499 filing obligations. 
While it's obvious that the VoIP providers will have to comply with these rules, the officer certification and the obligation to update those certifications when changes occur give the commission, again, some additional enforcement mechanisms for noncompliance. Another rule uh, is that the FCCs uh, will require that direct access applicants certify that they will comply with all numbering requirements imposed by states in which they have numbers. And not just the laws that relate to numbering requirements, but they also have an obligation to certify that they will comply with all laws, regulations, registration requirements um, that apply to them as business operating in each state in which they're seeking numbering resources. These are all state laws, not just state, not just a statement or a, a certification that they'll comply with either telecommunication laws or uh, numbering authority regulations that are imposed by the state. Now, one of the, I think one of the intended consequences of, of this requirement is to disincent VoIP providers from seeking numbers in states in which they don't serve end user customers or really don't have an intention to, uh, to serve customers or a sufficient amount of customers to really apply for the, to, to really have that numbering, I'm sorry, to, to have that certification obligation. And then finally, to ensure that the accuracy of the applications um, and to disincent bad actors from filing for direct access, the commission revised its rules to require an officer or authorized representative to attest under penalty of perjury that all the statements are true and correct. Uh, and in the order, the commission also reminded applicants that the willful false statements in any certification that they make to in their application for numbering authority are punishable by fine and or imprisonment and or forfeiture. And so the commission is being very serious about, about the applications. Um, they're reminding companies that are applying that, that you've got to take these obligations seriously. Um, and, and obviously they're, they're, they're targeted towards, towards reducing and mitigating robocall issues um, in, through these rules. And uh, that's, those are the rules that the commission's adopted. Now I'll, I'll note briefly that the commission also adopted uh, or codified the process that it has already been using to review and reject applications. So they've authorized the Bureau to evaluate and approve or reject the direct applications and delegated the Bureau to the Bureau the authority to, to revoke authorizations that have been previously granted. Now I mentioned that the commission also issued the second further notice of proposed rulemaking to seek comment on whether existing interconnected VoIP providers with direct access uh, whether they should be subject to these same obligations that I just described. Now, certainly that's the direction the commissions will, will go. Um, it's going to uh, have these same rules apply to, to all interconnected VoIP providers with direct access once it follows uh, the necessary rulemaking pro uh, process. Um, notably, the commission also sees comment on a proposal um, to minimize harms that may arise from bad actors that access numbers indirectly. Um, so actors that, that bad actors that get numbers from a VoIP inter interconnected VoIP provider, um, uh, the commission is seeking comment on whether and how the commission can hold uh, their partners, namely the interconnected VoIP providers that have provided those numbering resources, how they might be able to uh, hold those partners accountable for those bad actions. 
So the, the policy reasons underlying this order and the second further notice of proposed rulemaking are pretty self-evident. Given the commission's enforcement actions on robocallers, this order uh, puts in place several new obligations on VoIP providers that, that have direct access or will have a direct access to, to numbers and make it easier for the commission to take enforcement action against VoIP providers that assist robocallers um, and, and otherwise create robocall problems. Uh, so I will now pass the baton to Mike Dover, who will talk about the commission's notice of proposed rulemaking to refresh the record relating to the commission's 5G fund. Thanks, Hank. Last Thursday, the commission adopted a uh, further notice of proposed rulemaking or FNPRM relating to the 5G fund program and subsequently adopted the and subsequently released the FNPRM on September 22nd. The FNPRM seeks to refresh the record on the commission's plan to expand deployment of 5G service to rural communities using 5G funds. As background, the commission established the 5G fund in October 2020 as part of the 5G fund report and order as a replacement for the mobility fund phase two. Uh, and it adopted a structure for the program, but delayed implementation pending the release of the national broadband map. The 5G fund was planned to use a multi-round reverse auction to distribute up to $9 billion in two phases to retarget mobile universal service in high cost program in the high cost program to bring voice and 5G broadband service to rural areas. The areas targeted for funds uh, was planned to use, uh, the plan was to use the national broadband map and information from the broadband data collection uh, with areas targeted that lack unsubsidized 4G LTE and 5G broadband service by at least one service provider. Bids and awards would use support prices per adjusted square kilometer. In addition, in the commission's originally, uh, original plan, the commission adopted requirements for competitive eligible telecommunications carriers or ETCs receiving legacy high cost support for mobile wireless service and 5G fund auction support recipients um, to provide voice and 5G broadband service and included performance uh, requirements such as meeting baseline performance for data, uh, uh, data speed, latency, and data allowances and uh, established interim and final service deployment milestones along with uh, reporting requirements to so that the commission can monitor the progress. Well, in May of this year, the commission released its uh, updated national broadband map providing mobile coverage data. And based on that release and with uh, the commission says the expected twice a year updates to the map, the commission states that it's now time to uh, move forward uh, to refresh the record related relating to the 5G fund. Specifically, the FNPRM seeks comments on all uh, aspects of uh, the proposals. I'm 
going to detail a few of those proposals, uh, but please refer to the full NPRM for more information or additional information. Um, some of the areas for comment include uh, how to define the areas that will be eligible for 5G fund support, reassessing the budget and, and how the budget uh, will be funded, potentially reconsidering, uh, reconsidering the use of adjusted square kilometers as the metrics for accepting bids and identifying winning bids, uh, whether to aggregate areas eligible uh, for support, and how to measure compliance with the uh, fund's program uh, performance requirements, whether or not to modify the matrices for accepting bids and identifying winning bids, and um, potentially modifying the schedule for transitioning from mobile legacy high cost support to 5G fund support. In addition, there's several other um, areas uh, for requested comments, such as uh, requiring 5G fund support recipients to implement cybersecurity and supply chain risk management policies. So let me uh, get into detail on a couple of these areas, but again, um, more detail is found in the FNPRM. Um, so in the area of eligible uh, areas for support, the commission seeks comment on whether to continue to include areas lacking unsubsidized 4G LTE within the scope of eligible areas for support. The commission states that it excluded from eligibility for 5G fund support areas that have unsubsidized 4G LTE networks deployed based on the rationale that subsidizing 5G deployments where unsubsidized 4G LTE networks already have been deployed would risk preempting 5G deployments. The Commission's scope of request for comment on this question includes how modifying the scope of eligible areas to eliminate the 4G LTE um, component, whether or not that would be with it in the public interest, and what would the costs and benefits of eliminating that part of the definition be. The Commission also seeks comments on its original proposal to use a speed threshold of five down, one up with respect to 4G LTE service and seven down, one up for 5G service as the benchmark for determining eligible areas for support. In addition, uh, the C Commission seeks comment on whether to use the H3 hexagonal geospatial indexing system to identify specific geographic areas eligible for 5G support. Uh, the commission notes that the WTB, um, OEA, and um, Office of Engineering and Technology adopted the H3 system to identify geographic areas where a challenge um, to a provider's mobile broadband data collection data um, uh, for challenges to a provider's mobile broadband data collection and asks whether or not the same H3 uh, system should be used as part of the 5G uh, program. Other considerations the commission raises include whether and how to include open roads, urbanized areas, water only areas, and uh, or inaccessible areas as areas potentially eligible for support. 
In addition, a key component of the eligible areas um, proposals include a request for comment on whether to make 5G support available for areas in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands that meet that otherwise meet eligible area and terms and conditions for support under the 5G program. Previously, the commission excluded Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands from eligibility for the 5, for 5G support because the commission uh, was already providing high-cost support, including support for 5G mobile, broadband through the Bring Puerto Rico Together Fund and the Connect uh, USV, U.S. Virgin Islands Fund, USVI. Um, However, the commission notes that it has used emergency funding following the uh, hurricanes, uh, Hurricane Irma and Maria, and also notes that the 24 month transition period for the conclusion of the stage two mobile support under those programs is ending, um, or has just begun and would end the program for the stage two mobile support. And so therefore the commission seeks comments on whether or not to include Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands as eligible for 5G fund support. Other proposals in the FNPRM include whether to modify the $9 billion budget for uh, uh, budget to use a more cost effective procedure the commission states that it proposed using reverse auction to use competition to determine whether areas will receive support and to ensure as many areas as possible could be covered within the budget at the prices of the winning budget uh, bidders uh, at prices the winning bidders have agreed to accept. However, the commission seeks alternatives and, and has proposed a, a couple alternatives in the FNPRM. Um, in addition, uh, the, the another proposal the commission raises is uh, whether or not to continue using an adjustment factor as originally proposed for the 5G program. Um, and as background, uh, the commission proposed using adjustment factors for supports based on areas, um, based on the characteristics of areas, such as uh, sparsely populated areas or forested or mountainous areas. Um, or areas with lower income. Um, the proposals include uh, potential changes to the performance uh, matrices and uh, performance uh, reporting. Um, in addition, uh, the, the commission proposes to modify the methodologies that su uh, support recipients would use um, to demonstrate performance coverage. Um, proposing that support recipients use um, broadband data collection mobile ver uh, verification processes as the basis to show coverage and demonstrate compliance with interim and final deployment milestones. Uh, at, at its open meeting, the commission unanimously adopted the FNPRM. Comments are due on October 23rd and reply comments are due November 21st. Well, thank you for joining us for our first take of the FCC's September open meeting. Join us next time for our first take on the FCC's open meetings.
Thank you. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.